But even if we have nothing at the end of this pandemic, our artists will still create because this is what we do all the time. We create something out of nothing. Welcome to The Curious Kaki Show. The show for curious minds and hungry hearts. I'm Sam. And I'm Yvonne. And on this episode, we have Colin Curtin, stage and screen actor, director, founding member of Footstool Players, a local theatre company here, to chat with us. Hi, Colin. Nice to have you on the show. Hi, Colin. Hi. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> <laughs> thanks it's, for being here. Yeah, thanks for being here. So My pleasure. So just right off the bat, uh, we want to ask, you know, being that having a career in the performing arts is, and media arts right, is fairly unusual in our Malaysian culture, why did you enter into the performing arts? Well, I did it for the money, of course. Of course. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Uh, actually, my entry into the performing arts uh, took me even completely by surprise. Uh, I'd always known that I had a gift in performing, but I, I never ever dreamt of pursuing it as a vocation. Uh, funnily enough, when I was 10 years old, my, 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 my standard four teacher, Mr. Lim, saw me fooling around my friends during recess one day, and he came up to me and he said, young man, you should be an actor. Uh, but of course, I, I never took anything like this uh, seriously. And I also had many other uh, interests and gifts that were way more vocation worthy. Uh, in fact, when I finished Form 6 and I was considering what course that I should do at university, I had uh, I actually had four very divergent interests mm -hmm. that I was uh, considering pursuing. There was journalism, there was insect biology, there was interior design, and computer science. And I eventually uh, studied computer science uh, with a minor in management. And after I graduated, I worked in IT, in systems design uh, with a multinational company. And some years into my work uh, with them, I developed an interest in advertising and marketing promotions. And so I asked if I could make a, a lateral move within the company. Uh, of course, they found it a little hard to accept because, you know, they saw me only as a, a techie, a tech guy. Right. So I was initially <laughs> ignored for some time uh, until I joined the organizing committee for the company's annual dinner and dance one year. And I managed to inject some fresh flavor into the event after it become, you know, somewhat bland after mm -hmm. so many years of, of same old, same old. And I also co-hosted the event uh, together with a popular radio personality. So for the first time, my company was seeing me in my performing mode right. <laughs> rather than in my techie mode. And I soon got the, the job switch that I had requested uh, sometime earlier. But a couple of years into that, I began to feel a very deep calling to leave corporate life and to enter into the performing arts. And I knew this was not of me as I was doing very well in my corporate life and I, I was thoroughly enjoying the work that I did. You know, it wasn't that I was dreading getting up uh, to go to work every morning. Uh, and plus, there wasn't much of an art scene in Malaysia back then to talk about, to consider it as being any sort of uh, viable vocation. Right. Uh, but as a Christian, I knew that this was a calling that was beyond myself, uh, a calling from God. And mm. even though it didn't fully make sense to me at the time, I knew I just had to be obedient and trust God where he was leading. But it was something that I wrestled with for some time uh, before I, I finally relented. So I quit my corporate job uh, to all my colleagues' surprise. And I packed my bags and I left for Canada where I got some training in theater arts. Uh, which was what I was particularly interested in investigating. 
I realized that much of what I've been doing uh, prior to that, mostly in church productions, uh, was actually spot on. Uh, but my theater training helped me to have a proper uh, grasp of the craft in such a way that I could now confidently communicate it to other people as well. And it was also good to have the, the validation of what I had already been doing uh, mostly right. Oh. Uh, when I returned from Canada, I took on a role with my church as a creative arts director for a couple of years, uh, overseeing the creative ministries within the church, after which I left and then I began freelancing as a performer uh, in the local arts and entertainment scene, which is what I'm, I'm currently doing. So currently I work as an actor, uh, mostly on stage and uh, also to a lesser degree on screen. Uh, I also produce and direct for stage. I conduct uh, theatrical training. Um, I do voiceover work for commercials, documentaries, corporate videos, educational materials, basically anything that needs a voice. Mm. And I also do voice acting for animation and video games. And from time to time, I also do some professional emceeing. You, you need to have more than one trick up your sleeve uh, to survive as a freelancer in this business. Right. So yeah, that's a little bit about my... Uh, curious, convoluted journey into the arts as a vocation and also what I, I currently do. Just out of curiosity, I guess, did your parents have any part to play in the choices you made now in your career or even then before you transitioned? And how has that impacted your choices that you make now or, or then? Mm. My parents have always been very willing to let uh, the kids do whatever you know they, they, they felt they wanted to do. Uh, I think my my parents um, very much took the view that you know God has wired us all differently, mm -hmm. and uh, and we have different gifts and inclinations, and uh, what you should be doing is something that you're happy doing. And so there was never any pressure right from the beginning. Even you know when I was looking at uh, 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 sort of uh, study options after form six, mm -hmm. it was very much you know weigh weigh this, look at your strengths and your weaknesses, uh, you know pray about it, and. Uh, and go wherever you feel that you you will you will be most effective and where you will enjoy what you do. So yeah, all along. Wow. And even when I told my dad about this, my mom had already passed on by the time I made this decision to leave uh, right. corporate life. When I told my dad about it, and I said, you know, I'm I'm feeling this this burden on my heart about this, and it doesn't make sense to me. And he just listened, and then he said to me at the end, "Well, if that's what God has called you to do, just do it." So just going back to your journey thus far, right? You mentioned that even before you had trained formally in, in the arts, you already been doing some uh, some small-scale theatre in church. And of course, um, something about the way you were in school, had, had your teacher come to you and say, you should be an actor. What mm. difference does training really make in the industry, um, especially in Malaysia, I suppose? How valuable is it? Uh, well, let's face it. There are there are people who are just born with innate talent, right? And, the, and these people will, will just do well simply because they're gifted. Right. Uh, and I think that applies as much in the arts as it does in any other industry. Uh, there are people who are brilliant performers in the arts who have never had a day of training in their lives. And kudos oh, okay. to them, you know, all power to them. Mm -hmm. However, I do feel that training does provide one with a framework for what you're doing rather than just winging it and, and not knowing whether you're doing it right or not, right? Right. And it also provides you with a common language and terms of reference. Mm -hmm. When you work with other trained artists, you know, they talk about certain things and you go, oh, yeah, what's that? I never 
I, I have no clue what you're talking about. You don't right. have a common language, it's common okay. terms of reference. Uh, I, for one, as, as I mentioned earlier, I knew I had an innate gift in acting, but it was only when I went to theater school that I actually could evaluate what I was doing instinctively already right. and, and see what was right and what was wrong. Okay. Uh, however, what I learned really helped to cement my skills. Uh, and it also gave me a confidence about what I was doing. And it also allowed me to uh, articulate the theoretical principles behind what I was doing so that I could communicate uh, that to others as well. So I would say if you want to be an arts educator, uh, training is definitely extremely valuable, if not necessary. Yeah? Mm -hmm. But if you want to be merely an arts practitioner, then training is not necessarily needed. Uh, but it depends on the level of gifting that you already have naturally. Mm -hmm. There's always always stuff to learn about your craft, right? Uh, even on top of what you already know, if, even if you've gone for formal training. Yeah. Uh, to this day, I still go for workshops uh, that are run by various practitioners. Ooh. And much of what is taught may already be familiar to me, but right. they might be just some little nugget perhaps that I could still pick up and add to my bag of tricks, uh, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I, I think once we reach the point of thinking that there's no more to learn, we become stagnant in our art or craft. Right. Uh, I, I guess I have a question. Um, as, mm. as an actor, right? So, example, a script is handed over to you and there's like characters that you play in it, right? Like, how do you bring... Like, do you have like a certain style that you go to? Like, how do you bring that character to life? Because it's very different when it's written on the script and when yeah. someone's performing it, right? I think as an actor, you need to be very observant of life. Uh, so I'm constantly observing people, sometimes in very creepy sort of ways, from their point of view, I guess. Just seeing how people move, you know, how people talk, and thinking about what's going on in their minds, what's their story, and so on. And, and, and I guess, you know, as you observe life around you, you, you absorb that into your internal database, so to speak. And then mm -hmm. you draw from these characters that you have observed over the years. Um, uh, as you create a character on stage. So um, I think the first thing as I look through a, a script, though, is uh, what's the story about? Who is this character? What yeah. are his motivations? Uh, what does he want in this story? You know, um, what's his relationships with all the other characters? It's this process uh, in theater called script analysis. Uh, if it's an actual you know, historical character, for example, I might mm -hmm. go and read up. I mean, I played a historical character a couple of years ago in a play at KL Pack, and the story is based on a historical event. So I, you know, we, we went to read up about these people and my character to try and get a little bit of understanding. Uh, if it is a, a playwright that particularly writes on certain themes and, you know, they have certain focus in, in, the, in, in their body of work, then of course I want to look into that too to see where the playwright is coming from. Of course, if it's an original piece, I, I may have the playwright right there with me and to be able to delve into their mind. So it's a very collaborative process. You mm -hmm. bring a lot of your stuff to it. The director, the playwright, your fellow actors will also eventually shape the way that you choose to play your character in the end. And there's many different ways that a character can be played. You know, if you've got different actors to play the same role, you will see different nuances. Um, mm. And... Uh, yeah, so it's 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 an it's an interesting journey of exploration and discovery, and then trying to pass that over to the audience so that it will you know impact them in some way. I think you mentioned uh you mentioned about how you know when you're on stage it's all about collaboration um 
immersion, adaptability, and also collaboration among all the actors, right? Um, yeah. Is there any specific method that you do that you find yourself, you know, after exploring, like that's the method that worked for you? I'm asking this because I was reading a little bit about acting and mm-hmm. how like, you know, um, Jared Leto in The Joker, like he was doing yeah. um, method acting, you know, he was sending his co-star like live rats just to immerse himself in that character. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, like, do you ever get lost in the character when you're on stage? (laughs) (laughs) Method acting, oh dear. Uh, I think there's a lot of value in uh, method acting, in the principles of method acting. Uh, But I feel sometimes there are a lot of excesses as well. I actually apply a lot of the principles uh, that are there in method acting, but I would never take a character home with me. Never, never. I, I get into the mind of that character and then I get up on stage and I do it, and then I get off, and I, I drop the character. Uh, in fact, some of the piece, pieces I've had to play don't even give you the benefit of a method acting kind of thing. Uh, you know, I've done stage pieces where um, where I'm playing four or five different characters on stage back and forth. You know, you can't right. employ method acting for that, you know. Uh, with all due respect to some of these great actors uh, and the performances they've given, I just feel it's unnecessary. I just feel it's a little, this is my own personal view, right? All power mm-hmm. to them. Uh, <laughs> it's just a little self-indulgent to mm-hmm. just feel that you have to inflict this character upon the rest of the world for the rest of your life. Plus, I don't think it's very healthy on your mind at all, you know, especially if you're playing rather warped characters. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, um, there's, there's value in, in, in these methods. And method acting is not the only approach to acting. There are many different schools of, of thinking in terms of acting. I think there's value to be learned there, but if you get too obsessed with, with a particular style or approach to acting, I don't think it's it particularly beneficial to you as a person. Um, what is method acting, by the way? Um, what you're describing sounds like what I thought all acting was, where as an actor, I'll be immersing myself in the mind of the, of the character and thinking about what this character would do, what choices would he make, and, and making those choices. Yeah, there's there's many elements to it. Uh, I'll, I'll try and summarize it very uh, briefly here. There's the element of what's the motivation and goal of the character. So it builds on a particular theater educator by the name of Stanislavski, uh, a Russian. And I use a lot of Stanislavski's theory. I may not call it Stanislavski, and I've adapted it slightly, but uh, in my own acting and in my own teaching of acting, uh, I do employ uh, quite a bit of his his, his methods. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in method acting, there's also this thing of, of tapping into some other experience that you can relate to that will help you to emote whatever is necessary for that. I think there's value in that, providing, again, you don't go overboard and you know how to control your emotions. Yeah. Uh, because you're in, you're in charge on, on, you know, when you're on set or you're on stage, you need to be in charge of your character. You cannot allow this to overwhelm you in some way. With the extremists, though, what they will do is they will get so into the character that they will take it home. They will live that character Right. You know, if that character has been with prostitutes, then they will go and visit brothels. Or if that character, you know, you know, sends hate mail to his friends, he will do that to his friends. I, I just, yeah, I think that's just going to the extreme. If you bring the character home with you or it goes to the extreme, right? How does it impact an actor or you as an actor if you do not create boundaries between your character and also who you are as a person? Well, how it impacts will depend on the person themselves and the people around them, yeah? Mm-hmm. I don't think there's one answer to that. But I don't think it's a healthy situation. Uh, why do you want to be a kind of a split personality kind of situation and affect everyone else around you and maybe even put your own self at risk, mm-hmm. your own mental health at risk? 
so I wouldn't advise it. And I would say, you know, for me, when I when I go on stage, for example, if I have to play a character that's very different from who I am in many ways, the way I move, the way I talk, and so and so on, what I do is when I put my costume on, that for me is the entering the character stage. Okay. When I'm off stage, I will remain in that character, even if I'm not doing a scene. I will remain in the character. I will try not to break the character. Uh, and then when I leave, I come off the stage and I take my costume off. That's good night, you know, Mr. Wong or whoever it is that I've played. Mm. See you tomorrow. And I'm off Colin Curtin. Okay. Yeah. So I guess so like, for me, that's my little ritual. Right. So I guess having like a costume or something to put on as a physical reminder or like... It's like a switch. Yeah, yeah. switch. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Um, we're talking about acting choices, right? Is there such a thing as too far to go to portray like the truth and rawness of human experience or emotion? Like, especially when it comes to like difficult characters, right? It seems to me that the more real a character is, or the more real an actor is to the character, the, the more they're praised, right? Um, is there such a thing to, as too far to go? Well, I think an actor's job is to be as authentic as possible to the character and to the story. Uh, if an actor is trying too hard, if that's what you mean by going too far, uh, it's going to come across as being hokey and, and the authenticity will be lost. Uh, you're always suspending disbelief. Huh? As people watch you perform, people need to believe that the, the people and situations you are portraying are real and for them to care about those situations and to enter into those situations themselves and perhaps see a mirror into their own lives. I always believe that the film Inception is all about this, creating an illusionary world. People know it's illusionary. They enter into it, but their lives are impacted in some way. But I'm philosophizing here. Yeah, so that, that, that's what makes theatre or film, for that matter, work. You're creating this place of uh, suspension of disbelief. Can you share a bit of... You mentioned a little bit about insecurities that you felt, right? Um, can you share a little bit about those mm. like um, examples of insecurities? Um, fortunately, I've not had too many, you know, I do like a, I do like a challenge, but I realize that, you know, the, the whole rehearsal process is a process of discovery and that, that I, I haven't seen this yet, but once I get into that, I'm going to discover. And as I discover, I will be able to do what it takes to convey this character. I think the insecurity is when you start comparing yourself with others. So I think there needs mm -hmm. to be a healthy sense of self-esteem not to the point of being proud, you know, I'm better than everyone else and all that. Uh, but once you start making comparisons with others, or if you're acting with other great actors, you know, there are some actors who refuse to work with other actors because they said it makes them insecure. <laughs> Whereas, yeah. And, and I think it's such a pity because to me, it's like, let me work with these great actors, you right. know, because it was gonna, it's going to sharpen me much more as, as a yeah. performer. It will bring out the best in me because I know I have to raise the bar. It forces me out of my comfort zone. So bring it on, uh, you know. Uh, and I've, I've had the privilege of working with some really great uh, uh, fellow actors. And I'm really grateful for that. Uh, so that's one insecurity, I think, when, when you start comparing yourself with others. Uh, but, you know, the reality is, as, as I've done this more and more, I realize that I'm not alone. It's like some of, the, some of the people that I respect the most have struggled with this too. I think all of us do. And so in that sense, there's a sense of comradeship uh, that I'm not alone in this. Uh, other people face it too. I was listening to a, an interview with Hugh Jackman after he did Les Miserables, the movie. And uh, he said that he had always wanted to play Jean Valjean. You know, it was his dream role. When he got it, he was like, oh, wow, he was so happy. And then when he got into rehearsals, he said, 
I felt I was in over my head, you know, and I could not do this. And he said, I kept going back every day and telling my wife, I, I need to drop out. I can't, this is more than I can, I can, I've bitten off more than I can chew. And he said, if not for her encouragement and her support and her validation, he would have. It was because of, you know, uh, the support he got from her that he saw it all the way through and was able to do a great job in, in that show. Yeah. So even the great Hugh Jackman. I think we all, <laughs> like regardless of what field uh, we're, we're at, like we also had, uh, we struggle like insecurities and imposter syndrome. It's just like how we channel those energy. Um, and also like just mm. being uncomfortable and just going with it. How do you think yeah. the theatre community has shaped you into being a better actor or a better director or a better performer? It, it's it's a place of give and take. And granted, there are, there are some people out there who are the divas, you know, a, a minority uh, who, who just want to take all the time. It's all about them. But, you know, most of us in the community are very much team workers Okay. And we want to see everyone succeed. We want to see our projects succeed. And so there's a lot of encouragement. And I, and I think, you know, through the years as I've worked with, with these, and it's not just people who are more experienced than me. Sometimes it's the people who are less experienced than, than you that, uh, that actually encourage you the most and uh, keep you going. So I think all of us have a part to play. It's like anything else in life, lah, huh? you know, we just need encouragement. And so I'm grateful for, you know, everyone who has, that I've had the opportunity to work with and uh, they've all shaped me in some way. You talked about uh, growing and one of the obstacles being to grow, if you said, is like either uh, thinking better than everyone else or not being want- not wanting to be pushed beyond your boundaries. Um, I want to kind of bring this up to a bigger scale, right? What are, in, in Malaysia, what are some of the current obstacles to growth and improvement in the culture and industry of performing and media art? Uh, I think... The biggest obstacle right now uh, is funding, okay. Mm, particularly for stage productions. I find it very ironic that when some foreign troupe wants to stage a big Broadway musical like Phantom of the Opera or Greece or something like that, the big corporates are willing to throw in millions in corporate support. But when you approach the same corporates to fund local shows, uh, you know, you get reticence or outright rejection. Oh my. And the irony is, that often these local productions are so much better than the big name shows done by some third-rate <laughs> repertory <No> company <laughs> from South Africa or Australia or wherever. You know, it's billed as Broadway, from Broadway. Yeah, it may have originally been on Broadway, but the troupe that is coming over to perform it is some repertory group from South Africa, Australia, or somewhere mm. else. You know, it's not the original Sarah Brightman up there singing yeah, uh, Phantom yeah. of the Opera, you know, or Michael Ball or whoever. Uh, and ticket prices for our local shows are a fraction of what you would pay yeah. to watch one of these big imported shows. So there's a double standard there. Until the arts in Malaysia are given the value that, you know, we know they have and we say they have, they say that we have, and yet it's often denied, it will always be a struggling industry. And many artists will leave for other shores out of sheer frustration, uh, as has sadly already happened in some cases. Uh, so funding, you know, both from corporate and government, that's that's one big obstacle. Another drawback in our local art scene is that it, it tends to be rather fragmented based on language. So, for example, oh, you have right. your Chinese television series with its circle of uh, uh, and following, yeah? And then you have your Malay yeah, yeah. TV series, likewise, with its circle and following and so on. And rarely do we see films and TV series that truly reflect the multi-ethnicity and multilinguistic nature of Malaysia. So you rarely mm. find people of one race watching the shows of other Malaysian races, which is ironic. 
Because, you know, Malaysians will watch Korean dramas and Bollywood movies, even though they don't speak Korean or Hindi, but they will usually yep. think twice about watching a Malaysian show in another Malaysian language, even if there's subtitles. Uh, of course, there have been a few artists, though, who have um, been able to break that stereotype. You know, I think yep. of directors like uh, the late Yasmin Ahmad, uh, yeah. who made films that all Malaysians wanted to watch because they were multiracial in their casting and their storyline. Uh, also, yeah. Chu Keng Guan, uh, who directed uh, The Journey and mm. uh, Ola Bola, right? Ola Bola was a truly Malaysian story. Yeah, yeah. And various languages used, right? Uh, but his earlier film, The Journey, did, did any of you watch The Journey? No, I haven't watched no? The Journey. It was a few years earlier, yeah? Uh, the Journey is an interesting case study, all right? Because it was mostly in Chinese, right. with some English and some Malay, and it featured a multiracial cast, got one Mat Saleh in it as well. Uh, but the story was so Malaysian and it won the hearts of many non-Chinese who went to watch the show and they wow. truly enjoyed it because of its universal themes and also because it truly reflected the, the Malaysia that we live in today with its hodgepodge of, of languages mm. and cultures. And you know, the journey went on to break the box office record for a local film at that time. Wow. Something that you can only do if you manage to capture a multiracial audience. So I'm delighted to see, you know, steps being made in the right direction of breaking the stereotypical race and language-based programming uh, yeah. that, you know, has dominated uh, our art scene with more programming that reflects the diversity in this country. Uh, there are also some inroads that are being made on... Uh, uh, streaming platforms like uh, View.com or VIU, View.com and others, you know, but there's so much more that can still be done, I think. So those are some of the things that I think we need to work Right. So is it also about like just providing the public with stuff to choose from? My experience being whether, I mean, a theatre goer or a movie goer, right, is that I obviously have to pay money for it. And my Asian mentality, mentality is that, okay, I don't know if, if, I'm, if I don't know if I'm going to enjoy this, I may not pay money for it. And like, it's only if other people tell me, like, oh, this is really good. Like, it's worth the watch. I'm like, no, okay, like, okay, I'll, <laughs> I'll forgot the money for it. I mean, back when we could still watch movies in, in theaters, right? I, I feel sad looking at the current selection of, of movies. Sometimes I'm like, oh man, it's, it's another Fast and Furious 8 and remake after remake. I'm like, where's other stuff, you know, that that's so good. Like um, recently you had a few, you know, like uh, Call Me By Your Name, I mean, of course, Revenant was, was showing as well. That was a really good one. But surely the lack of choices when it comes to really good content is, is also part of the reason of, like, I don't know, that ignorance, ignorance in the arts. Yeah. Um, if you're talking about cinema now, oh, that's, a, that's another oh, problem area. Right. Yeah, because okay. cinemas will only bring in what they think are going to have mass appeal. And they always play safe. So it's always the slapstick comedy, the ghost stories. I mean, we are so obsessed with ghost, ghost stories and horror stories. Yeah. And, 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 and then the action flicks, the mindless action flicks. There's a place for them. But, you know, that's all we're getting. So what about all these great shows? Good thing now is that, you know, uh, because of digital technology, they are able to bring some of these in. They may not play them for very long and they will play them uh, only in certain cinemas. Yes. And they will just release digital versions of them. Yeah. Uh, but at least it's there, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, uh, it's very frustrating sometimes to look at the what's playing and, and some great shows are just not there. Plus, you have such such strict uh, censorship rules right now as well that, uh... you know, 
every little thing that they consider offensive in some way gets cut. And then in the end, it becomes so butchered that is it hardly worth, it's hardly worth watching. And there's also the issue of, of uh, streaming now. I mean, with streaming options, uh, people can watch things online or on, on the streaming platforms, Netflix right. and so on. Or the whole issue of piracy in this country, you know, where, you know, people can just download and get away with it. Yeah, I, I agree with you because I used to work for like a, like a film production, like one of like the big like production company. It's all like how much money they estimate to make. So like the Fast and Furious franchise, they know that they're going to, expect on millions yeah. of dollars um and i think and like and that goes to like horror movies like you say because the cost of production is very low um but then they're able to achieve like more revenue out of it is at, at the end of the day it's yeah. also a business right um so i think that could be one of the reasons but I, I think you touched a little bit on streaming right um i want to like how do you think like um you know streaming platform like we have disney plus now in malaysia um netflix has impacted the arts industry I would say the streaming platforms will affect uh, the cinema industry, the film industry, a lot more than theatre. Theatre is a completely different medium. You know, even as an actor, when I act on screen and when I act on stage, it's a very different approach to acting because it's a different medium. And there's something about the live medium, you know, when you're performing in the moment, it's make or break. It's not a, you know, take one, take 57 yeah. <laughs> and cut and edit, you know. Um, it's in the moment and you have an audience there that is in your hand. As an actor on stage, you know there's an electricity in the room that in many ways charges you. It's, it's, it's an experience that is can never be duplicated when you're acting on a movie set uh, or, mm. or a TV set. And, and there's something about the live experience from an audience's point of view too. You know, There's something immersive about it uh, because it's in three dimensions out there. It's, it's, you know, it's meant to be a mirror of your life in some way, you know, even though... Mm -hmm you're not the character there are ways in which you identify with the characters and what they're going through on stage uh, and it forces us to think about our own lives as well as we enter into these stories so something very uh powerful that i feel about uh, the stage medium that cannot be just translated uh by filming it uh but as i was saying you know uh, these streaming platforms have opened up opportunities for english-speaking actors uh, because these streaming platforms broadcast their shows regionally or even internationally. And so they, therefore, they want shows that can have a, a much broader appeal and uh, the English language, of course, being one means towards that goal. Uh, there weren't many English language shows being produced for local TV for many years. Uh, but in 2017, when View.com started, uh, they commissioned three Malaysian-produced drama shows, uh, which featured diverse ethnicity and language, you know, including English, the kind of shows mm -hmm. I was talking about earlier, you know, mm -hmm. that really reflect Malaysian life. Uh, another area that's changed has been that there have been a lot more international shows that have been shot in Malaysia. And some Malaysian artists have had opportunities to be uh, a part of those. And then another area, actually, uh, in which Malaysia is getting itself on the international map lately, is in animation and video games. Uh, we have an immense amount of talent, I tell you, in this area. And it's beginning to make its mark on the world. Um, apart from the, you know, the animation work and that, that's gone into it, uh, I, my, 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 that's not my area per se. You know, I'm, I'm a voice actor and I've been honoured to be cast. Uh, in some of these animation series, uh, one of them, Cartoon World, uh, which is actually a dub of the popular Malay series, Dunia Echak, 
has already been taken up and has been screening on uh, Amazon Prime Video. Uh, and then two others that I've worked on are currently in post-production and the production houses hope to be able to sell them to uh, major networks like Nickelodeon or Cartoon Network. Uh, and I've also been voicing some video games, uh, of course, the latest being the entirely Malaysian-made uh, No Straight Roads, NSR. It's been produced by a local company, Metronomic, and uh, the guy behind that, one Hasmir, has been involved with Final Fantasy and, uh, and other shows as well. And so now he's making his own games uh, here in Malaysia. Wow. And uh, No Straight Roads has already been making its mark uh, internationally since it was released last year. What has surprised you most about having this career? Um, you say you've been doing it for about 20 years already. And in seeing all the changes, developments, evolutions, or even just, I guess, your own experience as an actor, right? Like, did you ever think you end up here today? Um, <laughs> what, yeah, what, what do you remember fondly and what surprised you? What surprised me about having this career? Yeah. Uh, wow. I, I guess what has surprised me most about having this career is having this career. Lah. That's what surprised me most. Yeah, <laughs> ironically, uh, 25 years ago, you know, I was a corporate suit and, and here I am, look at this journey. Uh, it's, I, you know, it's taken me on. I, I entered it with a lot of trepidation. Like I said, you know, I had no idea what to expect. I couldn't figure it out. Uh, but God has, you know, opened doors in my life in surprising places where there have been, you know, other surprises there too. Uh, even as I've taken this journey with him. And I I can say right now, I, I can look back without any regrets whatsoever. Uh, really thankful for all that I've enjoyed uh, over these years. It's not always been easy, uh, but I have no regrets. I've enjoyed it. And hopefully, you know, I hope to continue to enjoy that for the years that remain. Uh, if you had told me 25 years ago, before I left my corporate job, yeah, yeah. that this would be my career trajectory, I would probably have laughed at you. <laughs> yeah. So here I am. Yeah, surprised. Wow. Looking back, right, um, I mean, yeah. what, like, is to someone, like, what would be the value, you know, for someone to pursue something that they're passionate about? Um, you know, with the arts, it's very hard to put a price tag on things. Yeah. Uh, you know, even sometimes when I do work and people say, you know, what's your fee? How do you put a price tag on some of these things? Yeah. Uh, because it's so intrinsic in its value. It's, uh, it's not something that you can quantify. And its value to one person will be uh, different yeah. uh, to somebody else. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, you can't talk about value. But we know, you know, we look at things in a very broad perspective that the arts has value to society. Uh, there's something, you know, about watching a dancer dance and being reminded that life is a beautiful thing. Mm. You know, uh, there is some, something about listening to a musician play their instrument and just being lifted and being given uh, a new lease of life. You know, uh, when I was uh, in, in Canada at theatre school, there was a period one summer where I was away doing a, another course and serving on a volunteer basis. And I stayed on this base uh, where, I, uh, where I was at. And, um, and there was a beautiful grand piano in the hall. Mm -hmm. And every day after dinner, I would go and sit at that piano and I would play the piano. Just, you know, it was my own time of just sitting, playing. You know, sometimes I played worship songs. It's just... You know, worship unto God, just the music, you know, nothing else, just the music. 
and there was a, a woman who lived on that base where I was. And at the end of my, uh, I think it was about six weeks I was there, uh, she said to me, thank you so much for the music you gave every day. You know, these past six weeks, I've been going through a very hard time. I've hardly shared it with anyone. But at, every evening as you played those songs, it just reminded me that, you know, life is not as bad as I think it is right now. And it just lifted my spirit. So thank you for that. Wow. I had no clue, you know. Mm. <laughs> I wasn't, I didn't even know she was listening. I was just playing. But it, it made me aware uh, of the fact that there is something just so beautiful about the arts that reminds us of the wonder of life and the beauty of life and can just help to give people that extra mileage to, to see us through. I mean, we're all going through pandemic times right now. What do we do? We listen to our music, we turn on the TV and watch shows and movies and so on. Mm. The arts has helped us get through uh, these difficult times. Another th story I, I, I think of would be uh, when I was uh, at theater school, one of the things that uh, some of us in the community would do is we would go down once a week, different groups of us, to an old folks home and we would play music. Mm. In, because a lot of us were very musical, you know, right. we'd go down and play music. And I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a pianist. So uh, I would go down and I would play. And because these were all folk, I would pick the songs of the 40s and the 50s. I love right. that music anyway myself, you know, <laughs> the standards that they call them, you know. So I, I would just go there and I would play these, these songs. And sometimes if we had people there who could sing, uh, you know, from our, our team, they would also join in and, and sing. But, you know, some of these old folks sitting there and they look so down and depressed. And then when you play that music, it's like their eyes light up. Mm. And I remember one day, uh, this elderly man, I think he was in his late 80s, you know, mm. very doddery. He got up. And he held his hand out to this elderly lady who was there. And she got up and then they danced in the room wow. as, we, as, as we played. And there was another man uh, who has had Alzheimer's and he hardly talks now because he's like in his own cocoon of a world. And when I yeah. played one song one day from the 1940s or whatever, it would be in the time of his youth, mm -hmm. this man mouth started moving and the words started coming out of this song. Wow. And the, the, one of the caregivers there said to me later, you know, he has never spoken a word for years. Wow. And to see him mouth the words of that song, it was like something awakened in his spirit, mm -hmm. so to speak. And it's a beautiful thing to watch, you know. Uh, and so that, that, those are the little things that remind me that what we do, <sighs> yeah, it may not be a cure for cancer, but... <laughs> It comes close sometimes, yeah. you know, in, yeah. in individuals' lives. And I've had people share with me, you know, over the years about how some play that I did or some sketch even that I did, you know, 15, 20 years ago made some little difference in their life in some way, you know, and they express their appreciation for it. Mm. And I'm just humbled by, by that, to have the opportunity to impart value <laughs> Uh, into someone's life uh, gives value to what I do as well. How do you put a price on that, huh? Yeah, exactly. No Visa card or MasterCard can buy it. <laughs> um, you also said that there's a lot that's improving, there's a lot that's that's changing and you feel it's for the better, right? Um, mm -hmm. Despite the seeming unappreciation and stagnancy of the arts in Malaysia, uh, what gives you hope? I would say that I see hope 
in the tenacity of our local artists. Mm. You know, um, artists create something out of nothing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so much has been taken away from us during this pandemic. And people say, will you have anything left at the end of it? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you'll have nothing. Um, won't just be a stagnant art, it'll be a dead art scene, you know. And uh, there's infrastructure that's being affected right now, even arts infrastructure, you know, people are having to look for other jobs. Will they come back? Will these uh, venues still be be able to function or will they have closed down because of financial losses and so on? So we have no idea, right? But even if we have nothing at the end of this pandemic, our artists will still create because Mm -hmm. this is what we do all the time. We create something out of nothing. That's what art is. Wow. And so we will just take the nothing that this pandemic might give us or the little that remains and create out of it and build up again from uh, those ashes. Um, and so, you know, as I look at our local artists, there is a tenacity that weathers everything, unappreciation and stagnancy and all the other discouragements that life throws at us and still gives birth to art, even if its audience is, is just a handful of people in some shop lot in the back streets of some far-flung corner of the Klang Valley, mm. which, by the way, has been happening a lot already, <laughs> even before the pandemic hit. Yeah. yeah? So I see, I see hope in that, the tenacity of, of the, the, the artists. And I also see hope in a, in a new generation that is, that is rising, that has so much more, as I said just now, understanding of the arts, uh, and an appreciation of it, and a commitment to it. And this new generation is the, uh, are the people that I hope will become the artists of the future, already, you know, already being artists already. And these are the people that I hope will become those in positions of power in the corporate world and in government, uh, who will then be able to support the arts better with the funding that it, it so needs in order to thrive. Yeah. Uh, so I look forward, hopefully, lah. Yeah, hopefully. I don't mean that in a kind of wishful thinking, but with hope uh, to a better Malaysia uh, with a better art scene in the days to come. I think we've come down to the end of our time together, unfortunately. Um, And as per tradition on our podcast, we have our last two surprise questions for our guests. Um, Yvonne, do you want to take this one? Yeah, I think our very first question is, um, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? The best piece of advice I've ever received. I don't know, lah. there's been so many good ones. Uh, my status, uh, WhatsApp status there is this quote from uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, who was an author, you know, um, Treasure Island, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and all, all, all those classics. And, and he says, uh, and this has become a sort of mantra for my life, lah, eh? Judge each day not by the harvest, but by the seeds you sow. Uh, So, yeah, you know, I think one of the things sometimes in the arts is you're looking for the next big thing. And it's really not about the next big thing. It's about the little things along the way. Sikit-sikit lama-lama menjadi bukit lah, as the pepatah Melayu says, right? And I think we all need this sometimes. Uh, in different scenarios of life. And I think even right now in the pandemic, we, are, we lament all the big things we can't do anymore, but really there are lots of little small things we can do. Thank you. Sure. So our last question, as always on our podcast, is if you could give a 30-day experiment to someone, uh, what would it be? I guess when it comes to this episode, uh, I mean, 
you could, uh, I mean, just to give you a bit of direction, I suppose, the 30-day experiment could be someone who is interested in the performing arts or in whatever shape or form, right? And maybe they're looking to either improve themselves or they want to dip their dip their feet into into this world. What's something that they could practice, they could do in 30 days consecutively? Well, that's a tough question, man. Uh, <laughs> I'm just inspired in the moment, okay? okay. So, so uh, yeah. So, it's, it's, if, if you want to get into the arts, uh, particularly the performing arts, you need to be comfortable with coming out of your comfort zone. And so, if you're going to do a 30-day exercise, my advice would be every day, decide to do one thing that takes you out of your comfort zone. Wow. Small thing even, but it builds that coming out of my comfort zone muscle in right. and prepares you for the bigger things. Wow. Um, thank you so much for chatting with us, Colin. How would our listeners be able to connect with you if they want to what, be it hire you or just look, look at what you're up to, what's upcoming for you? Okay. Um, I'm old school, so I'm on Facebook. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so if you search for Colin Curtin uh, on Facebook, I have an actor page there and I think my email address is there. Okay. My email address is colincurtain at gmail.com anyway. Don't spam me. Only uh, legitimate requests, please. <laughs> um, and I also have an Instagram account, although it's awfully dormant. Dormant's maybe not the word. Dead is more like it. Uh, it's colincurtain.official. Okay. Um, once again, thank you so much for being here. It's been a joy and a pleasure to talk and chat and learn from you. Thank you. And for all of you listening... Thanks for listening with us on the Curious Kaki Show. Stay curious.